Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's been Yamin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, with Mishpacha's home front, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Yamin, hello to you. Hello, Gedali, and the biggest conflict in a generation has just gotten a lot bigger. Since we last spoke last Thursday, the ground war has resumed. The ceasefire broke down. We've been able to get approximately 117 out of the 250 hostages back. There are still 137 being held by Hamas, according to official counts. In the meantime, though, the IDF is back on the attack. They're now on the ground in the southern part of Gaza, which are most of the last remaining strongholds of Hamas and also where the leaders of Hamas are suspected to be hiding out. Also, I might add that where most of the hostages are probably being still held. There's also two major battles going on, which are very important as far as the IDF being able to control Gaza, one in the neighborhood of Jabalia, the other in the neighborhood of Shujaia. They're both near Gaza City and the east central part of Gaza. These are critical pieces of turf that the IDF must capture if they're going to control Gaza. So we really need all the prayers for the soldiers over the next few days because the battles are expected to be intense. I just want to add one more statistic, which came out over the last couple of days, that during the ground campaign, the IDF has uncovered a total of 800 tunnels, which were under schools, mosques, and parks. So once again, when we talk about Hamas infrastructure and how they use civilians as human shields, you can't think of a worse way for them to take advantage of the population there than to build under essential infrastructure for children. And I think that's a message that has to go out to the rest of the world. It's not Israel that's causing the humanitarian harm. The humanitarian harm was caused by Hamas and what they've done over the last 16 years that they've controlled Gaza. Right. So, Benjamin, I just want to take you up on your last words that the message has to go out to the rest of the world. And when we talk about the rest of the world, ultimately, it's Western powers in general, but specifically it's the democratically-held White House, Joe Biden. And what we've seen is that the IDF was busy during the downtime when the tanks were stopped in the ceasefire, when they gave back the hostages, and they were busy producing a new map of Gaza, dividing that tiny, relatively small parcel of land up into very tiny parcels. And the idea is that they're going to be able to say block by block to residents of Gaza. And if you live in block number 38A, then you will have to move now because we're about to bomb your building, whatever it is, and then you can go to 41B. This is really unprecedented in anything we've seen. Russia and Ukraine are not expected to parcel up each other's country and to politely ask the residents to move out to another zip code. Can you move three buildings down the street? We're going to say so Israel is once again held to other standards. But for all those who are on Israel's right to have been, say, we're being humiliated here and we've got to stand up more strongly to the Americans, at a certain point, we have to say, this is the reality. And yes, as long as we're able to keep the Americans with us by sometimes unfair requests from their side, nevertheless, we're still able to move forward. We should thank Hashem and go forward to another day. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, is my sense. In Netanyahu's news conference on Motzei Shabbat, which he did solo, we'll get to that in a minute, he said that they're in constant contact with the Americans, and he speaks to President Biden just about every day. And he says, yes, there are differences of opinion between us. And he said there are also times that we're able to convince the U.S. and bring them around to our side. But he said at the end that it's our war, and we're going to conduct it the way we need to conduct it. And no matter what anyone tells us, we have to go ahead and we have to finish off Hamas. And again, he reiterated the three goals to finish off Hamas as a military and political entity and to bring the hostages back and also to make sure that there's no hostile 
government on our borders anymore, whether that's Hamas. And I think eventually that might spread to the Palestinian Authority as well to the east, because we're also doing a lot of military actions in Janine and in that area as well. But Gedalia, I mentioned about how Netanyahu did his news conference solo. Yep. We know that up till now, it's usually been a three-man show, so to speak, with Netanyahu and Gallant. You have Gallant Defense Minister and Benny Gantz, really the head of the opposition at this point, even though G.R. Lapid has that title, but really Benny Gantz is the one who's doing it. In the first few press conferences, all three appeared together. They all wore similar black shirts. I noticed in the next to last news conference that Benny Gantz was wearing a light blue shirt. Maybe he just needed a wash, Benjamin. That's a possibility, or he ran out of laundry detergent, this I don't know. I, I know I'm having trouble finding liquid Tide for the last few months, so. That's a call to listeners. Come to Vinyamin's rescue. Uh, yes, anyone who's coming from America who wants to bring a liquid Tide will be happy to uh, take it off your hands. But getting back to more serious topics, uh, Gantz was wearing a blue shirt. It was obviously he was trying to make a point. Last Motsi Shabbos, meaning this past Motsi Shabbos, Saturday night, Gantz was nowhere to be found. Yoav Galant at the same time that Netanyahu was speaking, was addressing the rally. He's so, a defense minister. He is the defense minister. Netanyahu said that I asked Yuav Galan to join me and he decided he wanted to do something different. And he said that's his right. And he did. And it probably wasn't a bad idea to split up the duties, but we see that each person seems to be going their own way right now. Now, I heard an interview this morning with Amichai Eliyahu, who is a Knesset member from Itamar Ben-Gavir's party. A, part, a minister as well. Yes. And he's in the war cabinet and he said that, listen, everyone is working very professionally. And he said, all of this talk about everyone bringing politics into the issue and the fact that there are cracks in the war cabinet, he denied it. He said that we're all working together. We all have one common goal. And I'd like to take him at face value. I hope he's right. However, politicians can be politicians and will be politicians. And uh, all I'm going to say and leave it at that is that we have to keep an eye on these developments and see if the cracks widen and if there are more signs that there are major differences of opinion between the different players or whether they can keep things together for at least a few more weeks. No, and I just want to go back in history a little bit, actually, because Israel's got a wartime government and it's had this before governments and national unity. But actually, history tells us that the politics, by definition, does continue under the surface, even in wars governments and national unity. I'm thinking particularly of the coalition government that ran Britain during World War II. And, you know, it creaked, meaning there's initial unity, there's initial common front and et cetera. And it's just the nature of things start creaking as it go on. But it's important not to confuse these temporary creaks with about to topple. I think, as you say, we have to keep our eye out for this one. But it could well be that this government is going to last simply because it's not. These people know that you can't bring down Netanyahu at the moment. He himself knows that he needs the support from the left, especially to get the Americans on side. So the dynamic is there'll be unhappy bunkmates continuing the same, to mix metaphors and continue to sail on the same ship. But can I just note, Benio, one thing, something that I think has distressed me about Israeli discourse, the highest levels that we're seeing everyone get involved in, which is what I'd say is just having big mouths. We've seen recently that there's been a lot of talk from leadership, for example, Netanyahu and Gantz and, and from now from Ronan Bar, the head of the Shabak, Shin Bet. They've all been saying, yes, we're going to go after this is our Munich time. We're going to go after each and every Hamas leader in Turkey and Qatar. And that type of thing, we're going to assassinate them. Now, this type of thing really distresses me because it's a sign that there's leadership is under pressure and perhaps it's not functioning at an optimal level when they feel the need to mouth off in a way that's going to achieve nothing. No one's suggesting that you can actually pick off Hamas leadership in Turkey at the moment 
because these people are going to be heavily guarded by Erdogan, right? The same for Qatar as well. So what's the use of talking about it? We say this person should speak softly and carry a big stick. But here at the moment, they want to carry a big stick and yell as well because it's politically convenient to do so. That's what I think this is, Binyamin, that they've got to be seen to be doing something. So there's a lot of talk. I don't like talk. And I think these politicians need to do more and talk less. That's frankly my opinion about all this talk of assassinations. With the exception of Chuck Schumer, which is, I think, the concluding message on today's broadcast. I know you and I have been talking about this for the last couple of days. And Senator Schumer, who's the Senate Majority Leader, Jewish member of the Senate, came out with a very powerful speech last week about anti-Semitism. And Dolly, I'd be interested first in your thoughts as a... As an outsider. Okay, uh, yes, as an outsider, so to speak. You're the one uh, non-American citizen on this podcast. So I'd like to hear how you see it from your side of the ocean. I'm flattered. Thank you. So what I'd say is that actually before talking about Chuck Schumer, I think just the definition, the place that I think that Schumer's speech fits is you have to refer to a term that Brett Stevens, once of the Jerusalem Post and the Wall Street Journal, now the opinion pages in the New York Times, he coined in the aftermath of October the 7th, he talked about October the 8th Jews, meaning left-wing Jews, whose worldview has been sharply changed by seeing the reaction of the leftist allies to the attacks. Meaning, as we know, even before the IDF had done anything, gone on the offensive whatsoever, there was the horrific outpouring of anti-Semitism from the left wing, and, and it's only got worse since. And the concept of the October the 8th Jews has been very, very, very prominent here in Israel. You see former leftists, often in the cultural sphere, one after the other, have been rejecting this sort of the peacenik past and saying that, yes, we've made a mistake, we have to change. It's hard to quantify. The merits are still going to continue to exist, but it's a cultural phenomenon. It's true there's October the 8th Jews in America as well, as a lot of them. And that category, that's where I'm going to include Chuck Schumer's speech, because in that 40-minute speech, he talked to his own side of the aisle, to the Democrats and the Liberals, and he said, many of the people who've expressed anti-Semitic statements in America aren't neo-Nazis or card-carrying Klan members or Islamic extremists. There are many cases, people that most liberal Jewish Americans felt previously were their ideological fellow travelers. And he said, we just marched together for black and brown lives, stood against anti-Asian hatred and bigotry of one type or another. But when we are facing this need, uh, apparently the eyes of some that principle does not extend to the Jewish people. He went on as a powerful speech, you referred to his past, and he said, look, this could be Nazi Germany all over again. Is America going to be the exception to the rule in Jewish history that the eventually societies turn on the Jews? That was the question he raised. And you know what I wonder? Could this be a seminal moment in, and a turning point in the attitude of liberal Jews to the Democratic Party? What, what's your thinking on that? That's a great question. Something I've thought about a lot over the years. I would like to think it would make a big difference in the long run. And I think among certain individuals, it will. You know, I used to travel a lot to America on assignment for Mishpacha. I haven't so much in the last four or five years. We had the COVID and other reasons. But... I would say the last two or three years that I was visiting America, or maybe let's stretch that out a little bit. Let's say from 2012 to 2016, uh, especially when I was there to cover the uh, political conventions and for assignments in between. And I would be at uh, various Shabbos tables with different people in different cities in Baltimore and Silver Spring in New York. I started to hear more and more from people, religious Jews, that uh, they felt that there was no future for them in America. And they at least wanted to get their kids out of America and either send them to yeshivas in Israel and let them stay there and build their lives there. Or for those who had the resources, they were all looking to buy apartments in Israel. Again, maybe not to move right away and to cut all of their ties with the, the U.S., but 
the feeling was very strong that things have changed here and we've got to make plans just in case. So that sentiment, in a sense, is not new. It's something I've experienced for, let's say, the last 10 years. And again, I haven't been to the U.S. much in the last three, four years, but obviously that sentiment seems to be building again. And that's definitely a trend. It's been a trend for a while, and I believe the trend is going to continue. I just want to finish up by saying that to think beyond politics, Jews are shaken up very much. In terms of identity, they're searching. They perhaps feel that American identity has been shaken their affiliation to the country when so much of the country doesn't want to have anything to do with them, that is often an opportunity to bring some of them back. And that's not the purview of politics, it's the purview of outreach, but there's definitely signs that there's an awakening and one can succeed in such an initiative, the Kirov, et cetera. And it's something that is a historic generational thing that we've not seen for decades. And let's see how this plays out. But Benjamin, just a note to the listeners, which is that the format of this podcast, which was daily until now, is going to be shifting to twice weekly, Sheni Lechamishi, as the war settles in for the long slog, which we don't know. So as the issues widen, the nature of this podcast is going to be coming back twice a week on Monday and Thursday, and we're going to be able to talk about more wide issues. And we hope listeners everywhere, thank you for joining us so far on the daily version. And we look forward to seeing you again here on the Sheni Lechamishi version.